Asia Tech Podcast. Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. Welcoming back part two, David Henderson to the show, and he is the co-founder and CEO of Driver, joined us about, what, five or six months ago. Driver are an IoT startup based in Thailand. David, welcome to the show again. Thanks, Graham. It's great to hear you you again, and uh, thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back. You know, we talked a lot about this in your first interview here on Asia Tech Podcast last year is, you know, about your background as well. And for those that didn't hear that or haven't heard it yet, go and check it out. But just a quick summary. And I think this is really interesting in the context of you and Driver and pretty much most of the travels that you've had in the last few months, you're always popping up on my social media feed, like in some different country somewhere in the world. But you're based in Thailand. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're based in Thailand. You were born in the Seychelles. You were raised in Australia. Just a few months, but well, a few weeks back, I saw you dispatched some of your team to Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, Spain. You yourself were in Bahrain. I, saw, I don't know if it was you or one of your team were in India recently. And a big part of your growth story is all obviously in Myanmar. So I think I've got it right, but it sounds like you are what Asia Tech Podcast is about. You must travel quite a lot. I do. I do. I've got through... Um two passports in the last two years. So um, a lot of traveling. Those uh, full-page visa stamps are, are a real pain. Right, right. They only make, what is it, 32-page passports now, all right? You got uh, You can't get the date. You know, the days when you used to get the extra books, you could stick in the back of the, the passport and expand it out. They don't do that anymore, do they? No, they don't. It's a shame, really. So you're, you're actually based in Bangkok, but it seems from, my, from the outside perspective, I've been following your journey for the last six months since we last talked, and uh, it seems that you have a big interest in Myanmar. Is that fair to say? Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. We do, absolutely. So um, as I kind of briefly talked about last time I was on the show, Myanmar is a really interesting country in terms of uh, people there are really open to adopting new technology because of the real lack of legacy systems. So everything there is mobile first and the rate of adoption of things like um, mobile phone handsets of new technology is amazing. It's just staggering. You've gone from three years ago, four years ago to having no mobile phones to now having 95% coverage across the whole country. It's it's amazing. It's a real, real story. Uh, because I mean, obviously you're based in Thailand and I had Simon Kemp on the show. Simon does the, uh, the Hootsuite digital, uh, light, digital, I can't remember the name of the report, but Digital Lives 2018 report, the one that you sort of see all over LinkedIn with all the data from every country in the world on social media. And uh, in his data, Thailand was number one in the world for smartphone social media usage. So, you know, it's right up there. People don't realize how advanced these countries are when it comes to smartphone usage. I mean, three or four years in Myanmar, I mean, that is incredible how fast that's changed. Are sort of, I mean, are, are, is the infrastructure up to speed? I mean, can you sort of go there and use your smartphone as you would anywhere else? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've rolled out a uh, 4G network now, in uh, mainly in Yangon, but also in Mandalay and other other major cities there. So, um, look, it's amazing how that 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 has really rolled out so quickly. I mean, it's it's a it's a great job from uh, MPT, Telenor, and the uh, the other mobile operators there. So, uh, that's all happened very very quickly, and it puts countries like um, you know Australia to shame. To be honest, the the internet connection that you get in in Yangon or Bangkok is far, far superior to what you get in Melbourne or Australia. And wow. they've been spent billions rolling out this NBN network, which has taken a decade to roll out. And all of this has happened in two to three years in, in, a, in, in Myanmar, a, you know, a very emerging economy. Right. Is that just because they don't have a legacy to build on and it's okay, well, we've got to do this now? Or is, it, is there a sort of a different approach to it? Attitude, maybe. Uh, I think it's. I think it's a combination of different factors. So, um, I mean, I don't want to go too much into Australian politics, but the the NBN um, network rollout has been plagued by political sort of uh, infighting amongst the, uh, the various parties there, and um, it's it's been a long and drawn out and sorry saga, to be honest. And I think the the idea that um, the network should be 
accessible to every single person at the same speed in a country of Australia's size means mm. that um, you know you, you've you've that's had incre massively increased the cost because then you need to roll things out to the middle of the uh, outback, which um, you know you right. could service that via other means. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so just to help us understand. Obviously, this is Asia Tech podcast, but not everybody who listens to Asia Tech podcast is in Asia, and for even those in Asia. Myanmar is sort of a bit of an unknown for a lot of people, isn't it? I mean, they kind of know where it is. They probably think it's a lot like Thailand because it's a neighbor. But what, what do we need to know? I mean, it's come online so fast that we're playing catch up. Yeah, I mean, look, Myanmar is, is, a, is a very interesting country with a, a unique and interesting culture of its own. Um, it's a former British colony known as Burma. It's a population of uh, just under 60 million people. Um, and it's had a, a bit of a sorry history since uh, since independence with uh, a variety of you know military coups and, and, uh, and military governments over the last uh, 60 or so years. Uh, the population is very young, very enthusiastic. When Whenever I go out there, and speak at events organized by our, our friends at Pandia or, or others, there's a huge amount of interest in, in tech and mm. new technology. So it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting interesting country and, a, and an amazing ecosystem and, and environment. Um, and it's also an incredibly safe place. I mean, you do hear often uh, quite negative stories about um, you know, the, uh, the political sort of situation in, in uh, Rakhine State, but um, you know, it, it is a very, very safe place overall and the people are incredibly warm and friendly. Do, do you find that sort of, that the young vibe there as well is quite open to the rest of the world? Because I'll put this in context, is that I speak a lot to Americans who sort of look at Asia for the first time and obviously Vietnam comes up on the, the agenda, on their radar. And for, for, you know, understandably, for a lot of Americans, Vietnam is just the Vietnam War, really. And that's all they know. I mean, they, they couldn't even name anything. Well, not just Americans, but a lot of people couldn't name a city in Vietnam, right? So, you know, when they think that they go to Vietnam, they think that they uh, are going to be met by sort of old sort of, you know, um, military imagery and sort of hatred for the West and so on. But, you know, look at the data from Vietnam as an example, is that they're one of the most open countries to globalization in the world. And obviously, a lot of that's to do with the young population. And, you know, they realize that they have to look outward for growth. What's it like in Myanmar? I mean, look, I was actually, I would very much support your views there on Vietnam. And um, I was there towards the end of last year, uh, speaking at an event in, in uh, Ho Chi Minh City. And, and it's very much, there was a lot of interest and the uh, country is very much open for uh, entrepreneurs and for, uh, you know, new business models and new startups. And it was great to see, to meet some of the local entrepreneurs involved in the ecosystem there. And I think there's a lot of uh, potential. Uh, look, uh, Myanmar is very much an emerging and frontier um, economy and it's it's a small but growing ecosystem there so I think it's got a it's, it's an attractive market but it's 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 a fairly small market at this stage so we, we're using we're working in Myanmar Myanmar's kind of like our spiritual home we first launched there we have an office in in and team in Yangon and it's for us it's a it's a, it's a very uh, you know an important uh, place for us but in terms of the context of, of Asia in general it's it's still a, a very very small mm. um, economy uh, but it has a huge I mean it was one of the fastest growing economies in 2017 um, and it is still there's been a bit of a slowdown in economic growth but um, I would expect it to to grow quite steadily over the next few years certainly it's coming from a quite a low base Okay, so let's have a look at driver and how you how you sort of map out in Asia. What are the main markets for you in Asia? How do you sort of break that down in terms of you know ranking the most important market first? So, I mean, in terms of uh, we we use our um, monthly recurring revenue or number of subscriptions um, as our key metric. Um, at the moment, that is that is uh, Myanmar. Myanmar is our key market. Um, but we are expanding rapidly in um, in Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand, and also actually in Hong Kong. So we launched in Hong Kong uh, middle of last year, and we're growing across all those markets. Mm. Um, 
So, uh, look, I think it's it's uh, for us. It's um, there's I see a lot of growth um, in the uh, next few months, and we have a, a capital capital raising round for a pre Series A. We're calling it for 1.5 million US dollars. That's ongoing at the moment, and we have had a, a huge amount of interest in that. So, mm. um, our focus for this year will be very strongly in the Thai markets, uh, but we'll also be continuing to expand in 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 a, in, in both Malaysia, Indonesia and in um, Myanmar. So, so how, how do you, what's the sort of plan? I mean, what could you share publicly in terms of how you are going to expand? Because obviously that's an expensive business. You're obviously going through a raise at the moment where you're seeking a raise. How, how do you do that in the most cost-effective way? Because even though it's in the same region, you know, even Hong Kong to Bangkok is a different time zone, right? So how do you sort of manage all that? And what are your plans well, it's you're absolutely right. It can be quite costly to operate a business in um, across ASEAN like we do. So you either need to have very good local partners, or you need to have a presence in each of those countries where you're operating in. So we, we've we've been looking at both models, and we've been trying to learn from experience. Um, we've looked at what went wrong in some markets. So we've had some problems launching in Indonesia. It's a very tough market to get into. So uh, I'm sure some of the, uh, you know, from listening to some of the other uh, speakers you've had on the show, Indonesia is the kind of jewel of Southeast Asia, but it's also a very tough market to get into. So without good local partners, it's really hard to do business there and and to be honest we haven't we struggled to find those good local partners yeah. in indonesia so that that's one of our strategic goals for this year and we are looking uh, we've identified some some people that we're looking to recruit in indonesia both locals and expats who will help us get established there yeah so in those markets that you've identified which would you think would be the market where would be easiest for you to get some traction because it, it's quite easy to sink money into a market and not get results, is it? Because there's just too much uphill or there's too many issues or, you know, regulatory issues or whatever there might be. But where do you see it sort of pulling you in the right direction rather than you having to push constantly? Um, so I think there's two two key uh, markets for us that we, we should be getting some really good traction this year. One of those is Thailand. Mm. So we now... Um, one of the things that's important is to have good local staff. So we've recruited some awesome local um, uh, staff here in Thailand, Arun and Ploy, and we'll be recruiting others who'll be helping us um, to, to give that sort of Thai face to our business. So that that is one key area. The other key area is we'll be expanding our um, team and presence in Myanmar. So we have Chris and the guys are doing an awesome job there. And one of the things we spent the last six months doing is working very closely with Mercedes-Benz, Cycle and Carriage, and Fuso Myanmar mm. to deliver them an awesome product, which is helping them win uh, a large slice of the new truck market in that in in uh, in Myanmar. Mm. So one of the things I want to share with you and the the listeners is that um, we've been nominated for. Um, a the Telematics Industries Premier Award, Telematics Updates um, Award for Best Commercial Vehicle Telematics Product. Um, and it's ourselves and a, and a couple of others in the running for that as a finalist. Um, and that we would be the first company, not not just in from Thailand, but from Asia, which would uh, is is uh, you know with the chance of winning that. So that's yeah. a, an amazing achievement, and that's thanks largely to the work of our team and our support from Cycle and Carriage as well. Okay, so it seems like a key, a core part of your strategy, David, is partnerships. Because to establish yourself in these markets, you you sort out some sort of premier level partnerships with some premium brands. One of the mistakes that I've made in the past with startups, and I'm sure a lot of startup founders make as well, is that they try to expand without partnerships by doing it themselves. Just because in in many ways it's easier in the short term, isn't it? It's easier just to to do it yourself and take control, and that sort of is the the blessing and the curse of being a CEO sometimes is that that's how we like to do things. So how do you sort of commit resources and prioritize partnerships? How do you, how do you sort of structure a team around that? 
Well, I mean, like yourself, it's uh, very much a learning experience. So I didn't have all of the right answers um, when when I started, you know, expanding into some of these markets like uh, Philippines um, and Indonesia. But it's absolutely critical to build those relationships. Mm. So we have a really awesome partnership with both Microsoft and Tata. So both of those companies have been um, have huge amount of contacts across the region, and they've been helping us by introducing us to their partners. Um, and those people have a proven track record of working in those markets. So it's important for us not just to take a referral from Microsoft, but to go there, visit those people, press the flesh, and kind of make sure that our interests are aligned with the interests of, the, of our partners. Mm. So I, I am, whilst, I mean, my, my preferred way of working is to uh, work with really good people, give those people responsibility to do things and just let them get on with the job. I don't, I don't want to be, um, you know, looking over people's shoulders and telling them how to do, how to suck eggs. That's, um, you know, that's not the best way to do things. It's best to have partners who are aligned to your interests, but it has to be win-win. Mm-hmm. How do you seek them out? I mean, how do you, you know, go out and win these partnerships how do, how do you just curious i mean the nuts and bolts of actually doing that because i'm sure startup founders would be curious and interested to learn what you've learned it, it takes time and it takes a lot of um you know we, we get people contacting us all the time who want to be partners of ours or want to join us as staff um, we're recruiting at the moment by the way um so we get we get a number of um people contacting us all the time so but we need to, to vet those people so other entrepreneurs uh, networks like uh, ozcham and the chambers of commerce are, are you know extremely useful so but, but it really it comes down to referral word of mouth and asking around so you know, we've had um, you know partners. We looked at people who look great on paper, but always do your due diligence. Talk mm. to people who are investors in that. Uh, you know, if, if it's another startup, talk to their previous investors or the current investors. See what see what you can you, you, you know um, what information you can find. Mm, that's good advice. What, what about yourself? I mean, now, now your team is growing. How do you find your role? is evolving or are you still doing the same things you're doing when you started out no it's definitely an evolving role so when you've got a team of two to three people or four people when you're the ceo you're pretty much doing everything um now i've built around myself a really solid and experienced team of uh, managers, some of which I've worked with, you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago, others who, uh, you know, uh, people who I've had referred to me, and I've given them responsibility, delegated to them uh, some key areas of the business. So things like uh, looking after some of our operations in key markets like Indonesia or Philippines or Myanmar, um, and also looking after things like product. So for me, my I have a strong background in um, product development and uh, on the on the business side of products so it was really hard to let that go but I, I found an awesome um, you know uh, VP of product Spencer Parker who's actually um, him and I worked together 20 years ago in the UK mm. so we know each other well and I've uh, managed to lure him from a very highly paying job in in Australia to work here in Bangkok and he's doing an awesome job of uh, leading our development team what was your pitch like to him to to leave the comfort of Australia and come to Bangkok. It was a bit of a risk, wasn't it? It, was, it absolutely was a risk. But like um, a lot of the other entrepreneurs that I've heard on Asia Tech Podcast, Asia really is the place to be in the 21st century. So if you look at history, if you were 200 years ago, the place to be was was London. 100 years ago, it was New York. Today, it's mm. without a doubt one of the great cities of Asia. And I think I might have even cribbed that from one of your... Um, Jim Rogers. <laughs> I stole it from Jim Rogers himself. <laughs> exactly. Here we go. Yeah, yeah it goes yeah. around. Yeah, that's, no, that's awesome. So, I mean, uh, yourself, as I mean, obviously you're the CEO. You're the, you know, one of the founders of the businesses. And, and how many team do you have now in Bangkok or how do you meet well you've also got Myanmar as well I mean how many team in total so so we're at 17 at the moment right um and we split primarily across three locations um Yangon Bangkok and Melbourne how do you build a company culture around that because the traditional way is to get everybody in the same building isn't it and you know that's sort of how you can create that serendipity or that sort of communication and it's a little bit different when you're in three different cities and different time zones. Are you sort of do you have to make an extra effort to build culture or do you not worry about culture is that just something that sort of is a byproduct of having good meetings? I mean, 
I'm curious to know how you do that because, you know, 17 people is manageable. When you're 170, it might become an issue if it's not sort of built into the organization already. No, I mean, look, culture is absolutely critical. So um, Damien Williams, our CFO, is actually um, the head of finance for a Series C startup called CultureAmp based in Melbourne. Um, and he's one of the people who's constantly reminding me and the team that communication culture and making sure that you know you know what people are doing that everyone's engaged that um, you know that people are happy that people know what they're doing and, that, and that's crucially critically important so we haven't always got that right so sometimes mm. we have had too many meetings sometimes too few um, having good meetings is one thing but you need to be having some face time with people you need to pick up um, you know these days with tools like zoom and, and um, other video conferencing tools you can actually it's almost like having a person in the same room yeah I wonder, I mean, how effective that is in sort of achieving the goal of creating some kind of connectivity and trust. Because, you know, when when I I think back to, I mean, I'm going back sort of, well, 15 years now, when I had a business which was based in London and India, Skype was our main tool to stay connected. But Skype video really wasn't a thing back then. So it was Skype calls and mostly Skype chat. But that was quite tough. And I think, you know, what we found is that what we didn't have was that sort of ability just to lean over the desk and say, hey, David, what's going on? Or, you know, want, want to grab a coffee? So that sort of very unstructured, casual communication, which really makes a business as well, it was it was hard to sort of create that. So one of the things we had to do was structure daily calls, you know, it'd be like the breakfast call or something like that. We just check in uh, once a day. 30 minutes, we just check in, just, and even if a lot wasn't discussed in the process, just doing that was enough. It's like having Sunday lunch in the traditional sort of family context, isn't it? It's just bring everybody together once. So are there any things that you do to that, to that extent that sort of build the company culture across three time zones, I suppose? Yeah, I mean... We, we Like um, you were doing uh, 10, 15 years ago, we also have daily calls. We have a daily stand-up for the development team. We have, um, you know, a number of meetings on a weekly basis and more informal meetings as well. We also try and get everyone in the company together once every six months to have a, um, a company off-site where we talk about some of the key things we, we've done in the last few months. We, we do a retrospective, a lessons learned to try and understand, um, you know, what we can do better. Um, and then we also look forward to the next few months as well. So that, that's an important one. The next one's going to be in Chiang Mai. We've done ones in Koh Samet, Koh Samui, mm. in Yangon, uh, Mandalay, amongst other places. So it's a good opportunity for the team to spend three to four days together um, just getting to know each other. Because as a growing startup, every time we have these meetings, we have, uh, you know, we've grown two to three people or maybe sometimes more than that at each one. Yeah, that must be a lot of fun as well. What sort of goes what goes on in those three or four days? The Chiang Mai, as an example. Well, I can't go into too much details to <laughs> whatever whatever no, no, stays in Vegas, but whatever is public record. What sort of things do you do? Well, what we normally do is we have a day which is focused on the kind of company side of things. So these are looking at some of the key metrics, things like our sales gross. Our um, you know we've we've had. We've changed and evolved the format over time. So sometimes we've had partners and investors involved, and that's something mm. that's actually been valuable to get those um, key players more closely involved. So our last um, one that we had late last year in in Bangkok, we actually had it was around 30, 30 almost thirty people attended. So in, this included some of our key partners mm. um, who flew in from around the world. So. Um, you know, it's it's important to to engage with those people. Um, but there's a, uh, the, the the second day was a, a session of workshops where we broke down into smaller teams, and then on the third day we actually had a team building activity. So that we did uh, Thai kickboxing. So that was mm. a, a, a fun but exhausting activity. Uh, and then we went out for 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 lunch as a team, and, and it was it was a good good activity. So we've done a lot of that sort of stuff, and it's it's important to do that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's absolutely essential, and you know that you you have to make the effort in a way that we we kind of assume we we still in in a way are, are burdened with the legacy of of hundred years of work in a sort of a very industrial model, but you know to sort of take that out and create these experiences, it's really important, and often. 
it's not you know not enough attention's paid to it because people see it as like a bonus rather than actually this is what the business you know f- you know functions on really you know this is what if it's all about culture then this is how you build it what do you see coming out of those those meetings especially i mean you bring in partners I mean, that was an interesting angle there you know what comes out of that is there any sort of tangible benefits that you see rather than just a feel good feeling for everybody yeah, I mean, look, there are, there are definitely some real tangible benefits that come out of this. So um, we, we've had, um, you know, a lot of new ideas have come out, a lot of important feedback in terms of, uh, you know, critical issues that, that can be addressed or that should be addressed have come out of that as well. And we've got um, everyone in the company um, touching base with each other and having a face-to-face conversation, which is um, very difficult to do. Um, we do have staff traveling around, but actually sitting down and having ops and finance and the development guys and um, everyone in the same room, you can you can often nut out a lot of those issues that may be causing pain or processes which uh, people may not have um, you know recognized as being an issue. So it, one of the things I would stress is that there's very much a culture in Southeast Asia of uh, a little bit of reluctance to speak out at meetings, yeah. especially um, you know teleconferences. So having that face-to-face uh, time is critically important and it gives people the confidence that hey that you know uh, David, he's not such a frightening guy. Right, you know? right, right. Um, I can say speak out, and you know it's it's uh, we, we we really try and encourage our staff to if there's a, if they find an issue, we reward them for finding problems, fixing them, and um, it creates a company culture of continuous improvement. I'm curious to know what your role is in sort of setting the tone there, because I'll bring up my failures from the past. I'll, once again, go back to India. Obviously, it's a learning curve. And uh, in that situation, when we first set up an office in the south of India, again, there was similar kind of culture, maybe more extreme in India, um, of avoiding asking questions or looking stupid or you know pointing out mistakes, anything that may, in a traditional sense, point out a weakness of the leader, right? And I, I realized that, you know, the the default was to call me sir, you know, like, they would call me sir because that's what they do and that's how they sort of been trained in their schools and so on and I was no different from being the school teacher to them in that respect but I, I noticed one of the big changes was when a change for the good is when I, I we banned using the word sir that they call me Graham and you know the reason being is that as long as they called me sir they think of me as a sir right and in a way that's fine it strokes the ego but Ultimately, it hides mistakes because you don't want the teachers to shout at you, right? You don't want the teachers to make you stand in the corner. Just all those sort of experiences that they've been that have been drilled into their heads, you know, for years and years. So, so what sort of what do you do to help address that that sort of cultural ingrained fear of, I suppose, confrontation in a way, which is actually needed, isn't it? When you have a startup and you're trying to address challenges and problems well i mean i can share similar experiences so um we got a few thai staff uh, and have had over the the last few years um and one of the things that um i noticed was people coming into the office particularly uh, more junior interns they would come in and they would why so they would bow to me right. as they come in um and you know obviously that's a kind of use something they're used to from uh, the teachers in schools and it's a sign of respect but it also creates a kind of you know putting you up on a pedestal and and you can't be kind of wrong or questioned and um i you know it encouraged people to just say look I'm, I'm, there's no need to call me Kun David you can just call me David there's uh, you know and going out to lunch and breaking bread with people is important and um, having building up a culture of trust within the company so rewarding people for um, pointing out issues is important mm-hmm. so one of the things one of our Thai staff said to me was um, one of the things that he, he loved about working at Driver was that we're very forgiving of people making mistakes we don't um, single people out for blame people get um, praise when praise is due um, and if if they've made a mistake or done something wrong then it's treated as a learning experience it's mm. not a something that's a punishable offense or you know people are put up for humiliation that's uh, that's not going to encourage people to um, you know to improve and right. me I take responsibility for when things go wrong myself 
and I encourage and praise other people when things go right. So um, that is very much my servant leader sort of mentality that um, it is not I'm there simply to enable people to do their job. And it's not about, you know, me taking praise or uh, whatnot is the team that's doing well. Um, and that, that's that's I think that's a really good approach. Are they comfortable with I mean, obviously your team is, but I, I, I wonder if people who, who maybe aren't part of your company or people around them not comfortable with that because that sort of servant leader type role maybe some people think oh, there's an opportunity to take advantage of somebody right because they're used to people who are in that sort of very top-down authoritative environment i'm just wondering sort of how that actually plays out does that did it take you some use to you know, did you have to sort of adapt yourself because it must be quite nice when people come in the office and bow to you right you must think oh that i'm very important you know, I'm just thinking from the egotistical perspective, right? How, how do you sort of keep all that in check? Well, I, I mean, look, I, I'm well. I like to say I'm a fairly humble guy. I don't uh, need that kind of uh, ego boost. I am already. I have a fairly confident in myself already, um, as you would be if you're the, you know, kind of CEO of a startup and you moved halfway around the world. So mm. I don't need that daily reassurance of my uh, self-importance. I already <laughs> have that being a white male in my 30s. I'm, you know, you already think I'm, uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. You think you're uh, the best. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. But look, another important factor is is humor. Yeah. You know, um, I find that's a great way and that works across cultures. Mm. So, um, you know, uh, being humble and having a bit of humility and putting your hand up and saying, yes, I'm wrong and I apologize right. and saying things like that is, is important. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, it's very important. And you might think those are small, those, those little sort of instances of admitting failure. I think they're very powerful. I mean, putting your hand up and saying like you fucked up excuse my French, but that is absolutely the example that you need to set to, you know, any, any team of people, right? Because they'll learn by example. They'll see that, okay, actually he said, oh, we made a mistake. He made a mistake and he admitted it, right? It's, it's all very well asking people to say, oh, look, tell me if you've got a problem or, you know, tell me about what's not working. But, you know, if you're not doing it, then no matter how many times you ask them to do it, they won't do it because they still feel that you're the example, right? I mean, what you say and what you actually do as an example are completely different, isn't it? That's the challenge, isn't it, for any sort of leader in that situation, especially in a cultural environment, like a mo not a cultural environment, but an environment where there are sort of different cultures, right? So you have to kind of set the example. Like they say in parenting, right? You know, the three laws of parenting are example, example, example. That's how people learn, right? So get out there and set, I mean, just, I'm, imparting advice if i may to the listeners startup founders who you know are growing teams in these environments is absolutely it's like it's all very well saying something but you actually have to show them first right show them that it's an example to follow absolutely i completely agree with uh, with your comments there let's talk about you, you have i mean you're recruiting at the moment and this sort of follows on from this conversation and you, you also have an internship as well um Given, given the environment that you have at Driver, and obviously you have people from different backgrounds and people come there for different reasons, what sort of people do you feel would survive best and thrive in that environment? Because not everybody can do what you did, David, and sort of up sticks and leave, move to a different country. You know, what do you think is the telltale sign that that could work for them? Well... I mean, what we try and do, we, so when we uh, recruit someone, obviously we interview them, but one of the key things that we also do is that we give them a small challenge or a small test. So that could be um, a development activity or it could be something business related. Uh, but what I find is that shows me their adaptability or whether or not they can actually work in the sort of culture that we're in. So often we don't have, like many businesses, we don't have all of the information that we need to be able to solve a problem or to be able to come up with a solution. So I, we normally ask, um, say, an intern or a, or a candidate for a role, here is a small task to do. Um, and based on their response or what, mm. how they do that task, that's a good measure of whether or not they'll be um, 
you know, uh, we'll, we'll be able to survive or thrive in the kind of environment we're in. So that, um, I'll give you an example. Masato, who's um, one of our recent recruits, he's a UX designer. He joined us from um, from Japan. So he, at the time, we only had one role advertised, which was for an admin um, admin assistant. Mm. Um, so that that role requires someone to who speaks Thai. He sent me his CV and he applied for the role. Um, I said, look, come in for an interview. Um, your CV looks fantastic, but you, you're not going to be suitable for this role because it's going to be dealing with the Thai government. Um, it's absolutely essential to have uh, Thai language. Um, so, but come in for an interview anyway, let's have a chat. So he came in, we had a discussion, and I said, look, um, Masato, um, you know, you, you're a, you've done a degree in UX and development and, and, and UI in Japan. Um, why don't you take a few days to show me what you can do. Come up with a new idea for a, a user interface, but I don't want you to just give me a design of a, of a, of a new portal. I want you to uh, take a bit of time and understand from our users or potential users uh, what some of their needs are, what that might look like. So I said, look, take as long as you need. Uh, he came back on Monday and he said, David, um, can I have 20 minutes of your time to talk you through this presentation? He gave me a 15-slide presentation where he'd spent the weekend researching, talking to um, uh, fleet managers, to truck drivers, and he came up with a concept for a product, which uh, was, a, was a very interesting idea, and we haven't implemented it, but uh, he spent a lot of time actually researching that and showing me the potential that he could have. So, um, and and we I gave him a job on the spot. So yeah, that's awesome. That, that's, that's a great story, a great example as well. So talking about his, his story, he he went away and actually spoke to truck drivers and people that your your team would normally speak to. Without you, did did you ask him to do that or did he take his no. own? He took his own initiative on that. Initiative. So wow, I, I was hugely impressed. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and one of the. And for us, actually, um, the fact that he's a Japanese, uh, a Japanese national, and many of our customers are actually Japanese, is a, a huge uh, bonus. So, um, you know, like any uh, humans, you want to interact with people who are similar to yourself. So, mm -hmm. Japanese people prefer to interact with Japanese, Australians with Australians, and so on, right? So, um, and there's a language issue there as well. So, um, often we find, we, I might go to a meeting with a Japanese prospect or a Japanese car, a partner or customer, and I'll walk out of that meeting thinking, okay, that was a fantastic meeting, um, this is going to happen next, um, and, you know, we, we've got them as a potential customer. Then months go by and nothing happens. So, you know, it's it's kind of it can be hard to read that. But with Masato's kind of help over the last few months, we've got much better at uh, reading um, the kind of intentions of, of some of our Japanese prospects and customers. So yeah. um, he's been a huge asset, and uh, certainly in the automotive industry, um, it's pretty much uh, Japanese dominated in Southeast Asia. Yeah, very much so. That it's awesome. I mean, just Masato coming in and. That whole story is, is so unusual for unusual. I mean, in a, in a positive way for Japanese to behave like that. And I, I mean, obviously, I, I live in Japan and I'm married to a Japanese woman, so I speak with authority. So that you know, not on behalf of the nation, but I've seen a lot of examples, and I think that more so than what you've identified in Thailand and Southeast Asia, the Japanese are less likely to ask questions, less likely to you know, take the initiative because they will always wait. Well, have they been trained? You know, they've been trained in the large organizations to follow instructions, you know, wait till you're told. Effectively, you know, everybody's a messenger in those organizations. So for somebody to come to you like that and demonstrate that kind of initiative is a rare find, which is phenomenal. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, we're, we're delighted to have him uh, on board as a team member and we're looking forward to him, uh, you know, growing through the ranks of uh, driver management over the next few years. So he's doing a great job on the, uh, the UI, but also one of those kind of uh, – people who's uh, like a polymath, uh, he's skilled at many different areas, so um, a, a very good find. And the the fact that he's Japanese – look, as you pointed out, it is unusual to find uh, – you know, Japanese people who do take a few risks. Mm. Um, 
I would say though, in terms of, uh, I think it'll be a little bit harsh on a, on a, a Japanese culture in a way, because in on the one of the things I do admire about Japanese company culture is the consensus style of management, and that's one of the things we try and do in in Driver as well. It is not a very authoritarian management mm. style. We um, discuss things internally as a team and come to a consensus. Mm. It's not like a committee style of uh, you know bland grey sort of committee direction, but um, you know that that is important as well. Yeah. Okay. Got it. It's cool. I mean, well, that's a great example, and I think there's a lot of you know things that we can take out of that story as well, and not just as recruiters and employers about what we need to look for, but also, I mean, if you're in the situation where you want to get into a startup or any kind of fast-growing company, there you go. I mean, following Masato's example, it's like, you know, don't necessarily just apply for the job. No, you're really, in a way, pitching yourself for a future job. And I suppose if you find the right boss, if I can use that word, the right founder, the right owner, you know, build a relationship with them and demonstrate your initiative, then there's always a door opening, right? I mean, it may open today or it may open in six months' time, but you have to kind of pitch yourself for the, the company fit rather than the role fit necessarily, right? I think that's kind of good advice for any graduate out there or anybody seeking to get a foothold in Asia. I think they need to sort of think in those terms, you know, not necessarily go and hunt down a job that's made for them, right? But go and make that job for themselves and, you know, find out what it is that the, the founder actually wants and build around that. Absolutely. That's extremely good advice. Okay, good. I'm curious. I mean, how does your, how, how does your team sort of break down in the backgrounds as well? Because you must have a really interesting mix of cultures and languages in there now. We do. We have, um, we have uh, uh, Thais, uh, Burmese, Australians, New Zealanders, uh, Japanese, um, Ukrainians, um, uh, who else? I'm missing some people. We we have um, good mix. Seventeen different different staff members, and across uh, I think it's ten different nationalities. So it's yeah. a definitely and Finns as well. And Seychellians, is there such a thing? Se- Seychellois is Seychellois. the right terminology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a well, francophile place. Yeah. All right. Well, what is the um, what's that like? I mean, in terms of having all those different nationalities, does that add something that? you know, sort of monocultures don't have or, is, or, you know, is there a risk then you get these sort of little pockets and how does that all sort of work? You know, is what's, cause I imagine that sort of ideal, isn't it really for a startup that you have lots of different, per, you know, perspectives and angles and experiences and so on. Do you say, do you see anything really sort of like tangible come out of all that sort of multicultural mix that you you've got going on there at driver? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the evidence shows and the research shows that diverse teams are more successful than monoculture teams. And, you know, there are uh, huge numbers of papers that show that. And even if you look at, say, the Thai startup ecosystem, the teams that are made up entirely of Thais or entirely of foreigners are the less successful ones. The ones that have done really well are the teams which are mixed teams. So where there's, um, say, foreign and Thai founders, um, and you know there's a, a mixture of men and women. It's not just about nationality, but about um, you know things like gender and and different perspective and age as well. So th- that's the other interesting thing that we have in our team is that we have you know a co-founder team who are in their 30s and 40s, and then our um, the rest of our team is uh, you know mostly younger people, uh, but also some older people as well. So Chris, who leads our our business unit, our, our you know business in Myanmar, he's in his early 50s as well. So. Um, having valuing experience and also having a good range of both age, gender. I, I would like to have some more women in our team. We have uh, 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 only uh, two women in our, our team, mm. but we would certainly be looking to address that gender gender imbalance. So unfortunately, this is a problem across tech uh, worldwide. Um, so I, I would certainly like to see how we can encourage young women or women in general to come into tech more. And I think the Thai and other governments across Asia have a role to play in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll come to the point about women in a minute. But before we get there, your point about diverse teams performing better. And you said there's a lot of research out there. One of the, the data points that springs to mind is that James Surowiecki, who wrote Wisdom of the Crowds, he, I think at the beginning of the book, he talks about the jelly bean test, you know, like they would have 
at some country fair or jar of jelly beans and you have to guess how many were in the jar. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know how you, you go about guessing the amount, but you kind of estimate it, don't you, by looking at the amount of jelly beans you can visualize and you sort of multiply it out. And so like trying to guess the number of people in a crowd, isn't it? It's not easy. And mm-hmm. so they put that to the test and they would test different teams of different backgrounds. And, you know, they would come to a consensus as to what the answer was. And they found the more diverse a team, you could draw a line, you know, there's a, 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 a relationship, the more diverse the team, the more accurately they guessed the number of jelly beans. So, you know, the worst guesses were the monocultures. It would be like a whole bunch of guys together, you know, a whole bunch of white guys. Mm. So, you know, they would be like the most inaccurate for a whole bunch of different reasons, like group think and, you know, like there'd be a natural sort of hierarchy and all those kind of things. You know, you wonder how that sort of plays out in software as well. I mean, you, you look at places like San Francisco, which are very diverse as sort of cities, you know, possibly that's why, you know, they've had sort of a, a great legacy is because they have all these kind of diverse cultures and different opinions coming in and people who are willing to challenge stuff as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see the great centers of, uh, you know, both tech and, and, you know, culture, commerce across the world are places that are multi- multicultural melting pots. Mm-hmm. So it's no accident that, say, uh, Austria during the, uh, or Vienna during the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the heyday was a, a melting pot of different cultures. Uh, yeah. um, as that sort of declined, it's the uh, nationalism became a, more of an issue there. And, and you can see that in, uh, you know, across the world. So I, I definitely think uh, diversity of culture and thought is, is important. Interesting you bring up, I don't want to spend too long on it, but interesting you bring up Austria. I read somewhere, I think it was the, would it be the emperor of Austria or the prince of Austria at the time? I think to celebrate his birthday or something like that, what he did was he, uh, ra- rather than sort of do, you know, the, the biggest gift to the city was to knock down the wall around the city. And it, they were saying that that's, that, that very act of knock down, knocking down the wall created, you know, a century of innovation or, or free of, freedom of thought. I mean, it was symbolic really, but you had people like Freud and all those kind of people that came out of that era. I mean, it's sort of symbolic really for software as well, but I'm going off. I'm diverse. I'm- yes, and some places are building walls. Well, there um- you go. I mean, yes, exactly. <laughs> we, we know the old world, David, the old world. But I wanted that thing about that thing about women as well is that, I mean, how do you consciously include that diversity in your team, especially in the cultures where women are probably starting at a position of, you know, more disadvantage than they may be in some countries, right? Because I remember from my experiences that, you know, I had a telecoms business back in 2000. And at the beginning, there was two guys, myself and a founder, and then it grew. And at one point, we were like 10 guys. And it, you know, I think you reach a tipping point where it becomes really hard to recruit women because, you know, when women come to recruitment day, they look around and see a bunch of guys and think, uh-uh, I don't want to work here. It's like, you know, 10 guys. This is not the environment that's sort of for me. Apart from the women who sort of thrive in those environments, there are a few, right? You know, the ones who grew up with brothers and stuff like that. So they're kind of used to all the sort of the boyish jokes and all that kind of nonsense. So how do you go about that? Because there's always a risk, isn't it, that you sort of take it to an extreme and then it becomes difficult then to create that diversity. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, it is hard to find, um, you know, uh, women in tech. Um, and it's hard to attract women when you have a lot of, uh, you know, if you only have men in your company. Um, so I, I can only talk to um, the women that we recruited in a, in a driver. So... Uh, Ploy, actually, who's uh, helping with sales here in Thailand, um, I actually recruited her. Um, I was, you know, picked up my phone. It was a, it was a call from, uh, you know, uh, a call center. I could see that, and I um, had a, you know, Ploy introduced herself. She was trying to sell me an American Express uh, credit card, and I was uh, deeply skeptical because uh, Amex is. <laughs> Uh, whilst it's <laughs> apparently widely accepted, it's not really widely accepted in Thailand, and uh, I wasn't uh, wasn't convinced that Amex was a good uh, good card to use. So I said, look, um, and I told her that before she even uh, had a chance to say anything really, and I said, look, give me give me your your sales pitch for for Amex, 
And she gave me a great pitch and she acknowledged, yes, there's these challenges. Um, and you know, if she, I, feel, I felt if she could sell a product as mediocre mm. as that one, um, <laughs> no offense to American Express, but you know, then, then she could do, she could sell an awesome product like ours with no problem. So, um, you know, I, I, I said to her, look, uh, we are looking for really good salespeople. Why don't you have a chat to, uh, you know, some of our team um, and come and visit us? And it took a little bit of time to convince her to join us, but with a bit of effort and a bit of patience, that paid off. And she's doing an awesome job right now, and uh, you know, um, and will help us recruit other other yeah. uh, young women as well. Yeah, so, that's and, great. And, and Snow in Myanmar, um, who's actually just celebrated her uh, her recent wedding, and uh, you know, congratulations to her. Um, She's uh, got quite a long career working for a number of different startups. So Rocket Internet's various ventures mm. in Myanmar. She's worked for a couple of those, shop.mm. Um, and so she's comfortable with the kind of startup sort of culture and environment. But from from my uh, you know uh, regular conversations I have with Ploy, uh, you know, just as you mentioned, occasional coffee, uh, she loves working here, and um, you know she's a great ambassador for for Driver, and uh, she's always thanking me about giving the opportunity to work in such an awesome culture should still be selling amex now but yeah you've done a great job i think it's you know never never write that off as well i mean even when somebody pitches you like over the phone like if you're a fan i always used to listen to people's pitches on the phone even if they were pitching you know double glazing because i was always looking for great salespeople, and the only way to Mm. discover great salespeople is in action see how good they are right so never forget that absolutely (laughs) David, it's been a real pleasure. Um, enjoyed learning a bit about your business and your, your company culture. Thank you for being so honest and sharing your you know your experiences and your journey with us. Because um, you know it's, it's kind of it, I think it's a really important part of business that's not talked about a lot, especially when you're in the environment like you are, where culture comes to the fore in many cases. You know, like you're across different time zones, you have different backgrounds, and, and so on. So. You know, I think it is worth spending a lot of time understanding it and learning from companies like Driver and how they're doing it. And, you know, if you want to learn how it works and the best places to be part of it, right? You know, they can reach out to you. You're recruiting. You you have an internship program. And like Masato, it's like, you know, I guess if David doesn't have the role that you're looking for, don't hold back. You know, still reach out and pitch the guy because I'm sure, you know, from previous history, there's still openings in the future. So, yeah, David, thanks so much for coming on. Really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, information and educational as usual. So I wish you all the best and best of luck with your nomination for the award. What was that? Telematics? Yeah, it's a telematics update award. Uh, telematics so update, it's, a, yeah. the, the, it's a major sort of industry event. It's uh, held in Detroit in, uh, in late April, in fact. But once again, Graham, look, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I look forward to uh, to listening to the, the uh, podcast myself and my team always uh, appreciate it. So awesome. thanks again. Great. That is David Henderson, everybody. He is the co-founder and CEO of Driver, the IoT startup and telematics company based in Thailand, but expanding as well. So you want to go and find out more about him. We put all the details in the show notes and he'll be back, I'm sure. He'll give us an update the latest journey of driver and David Henderson. David, thanks so much. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.